0: How's everybody doing tonight? Good? It's good to be here. I uh, have enjoyed my two weeks here with you all. Uh, It's a pleasure to always uh, meet other children who belong to our great God. And to know one day we will share in this great kingdom that he will set up when he returns to this earth. We long for that day. When he comes back to set up this kingdom, we started out by looking at the historical kingdom that he set up in uh, on Mount Sinai where he delivered the Constitution, if you will, the Mosaic Covenant to Israel. We we looked at that covenant. We noted the characteristics of that kingdom and we said that kingdom would have been a good kingdom. A really good kingdom if Israel had obeyed God's law. But Israel did not. And we noted the beginning of the kingdom, the rise of the kingdom to the pinnacle of its glory under Solomon, who sowed the seeds of destruction for that historical kingdom. Its decline under Solomon and Rehoboam. And then its end when the Shekinah glory left the temple in around 605 B.C. Uh, And the glory is no more upon this earth. Uh, You can look for it anywhere you like, but you will not find the glory of God present, manifested, if you will, upon this earth. But that glory is going to return. Titus 2.11 tells us that we are looking for that blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then we noted that that even though that historical kingdom failed, that God, through the prophets, prophesied of a kingdom that would come, that would far surpass the kingdom that he had just set up and established. And so we noted in the prophets last week the characteristics of that kingdom that has been promised, and we noted that it that it the vision that God gave of that kingdom, the reality of its coming will far surpass what has been here in history. We ended last week by talking about how the prophets, how God gave the prophets Revelation concerning how that kingdom would be established. And we said that we could take all of the material of the prophets, because there is so much of it in the Old Testament prophets, and probably organize it around what the prophets spoke of often. And that is the day of the Lord. And we could look at it from this standpoint, that there, were, uh, that there are events that are going to happen before what we what we called preparatory events before the great and terrible aspect of the day of the lord before the great tribulation at the beginning of the tribulation up to its midpoint then we said another box it will be the great and terrible day of the lord the second half of the tribulation or what we called the the penalty phase the penal uh, phase of the kingdom And then we said there's going to come a day when there will the light of the day of the Lord will come. The blessed light will come in the day of the Lord after the penal events. But before that happens, there will be a time of transition, which we called the dawn of the day of the Lord. And then finally, there will be the great brightness during the light of the day of the Lord when the king establishes his kingdom. Last week, we we said that there are are many events that fit in each of these boxes. We would not have time to look at all of them. So we said we would look at one event in each box. Last last week, we looked at one of the preparatory events. We went to Daniel chapter 7. So if you would go back to Daniel chapter 7, just to keep it in mind. Daniel chapter 7 and look at verse 9. This is... One of the events of preparation for the return of the king to take his kingdom, what rightfully belongs to him. And we find that the event is a court of judgment that is set in heaven. Notice verse 9 of Daniel 7. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. God is on the throne... He is about ready to render a verdict concerning this earth. We know the time frame of it from verse 8. It's going to happen at the time when the Antichrist is on this earth and rising to power, the little horn. Now we, we see the verdict in verse 13. The judgment of this high court grants to the Son of Man dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That encompasses the whole earth. Look at verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This kingdom has not come yet. But there is coming a day when this court will sit in heaven. And the Ancient of Days will give the title deed of the universe to the Son of Man, who is the Lamb in Revelation 4 and 5 who will come back as a lion as he breaks open the seals of the title deed to the universe and storms from heaven in Revelation 19. That's one event in the preparatory phase. So let's go over now to the penal phase and let's pick one event. God is going to chasten the nation of Israel during the great and terrible tribulation time. He is going to chasten the nation of Israel using Antichrist. Using Antichrist. God says in Jeremiah 30, verse 11, But I will chasten you justly, and will by no means leave you unpunished. Throughout the centuries, Israel has suffered greatly. She has had great responsibility. And with great responsibility, being the chosen people of God, comes great accountability. And so she has great accountability. Daniel describes the coming suffering of Israel during this time frame after the defeat of the northern army that we won't have time to look at. He describes it in Daniel chapter 11 this way. And there will be a time, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, excuse me. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. There will be a time of distress such since such as it never occurred since there was a nation until that time. The Lord's chastening of Israel at this time is called by Isaiah an unusual task. He calls it an extraordinary work. And probably because God is going to use Antichrist to accomplish this chastening. In fact, if you would if you're in Daniel chapter seven, notice Daniel chapter nine, Antichrist we're told, makes a peace treaty with Israel for seven years. He breaks it at the midpoint of the tribulation period, and then he embarks on a persecution to exterminate God's chosen people, the Jews. Daniel even records that he will overpower them. Look at Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse 21. Daniel says, I kept looking, and that horn was waging war with the saints. And he's talking about the saints in Israel. And overpowering them. Look at verse 25. He will speak out against the Most High, that little horn, the Antichrist. And wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand. God will give them into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So, Antichrist, emboldened by the defeat of the northern army, which it seems like he takes credit for in Revelation chapter 13, Sets out on a mission to destroy God's people. That's his mission. And he's not interested in the apostate Jews that don't care about the Messiah or God. He's interested in the saints. He wants to exterminate the saints. And God will deliver them into his hand for a set amount of time. All of Israel. Time, the text tells us, for a time, times, and half a time. That's all he gets. We find out from the book of Revelation that's three and a half years, or 1260 days, or 42 months. That's all the time he gets. And at the end of that time, the last piece of resistance left to his entire empire is found in Jerusalem around Palestine think of the 144,000 who have the seal in their head of Jews they are they're a thorn in his side and he's going to gather his armies to go down and put an end to them that's what he's planning to do if you would turn to Zechariah chapter 12 Zechariah chapter 12 we see the antichrist the prophets tell us that the antichrist is going to lead the armies of the earth to battle against Jerusalem. Notice what God says in Zechariah 12, verse 2. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem... This is God speaking. I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. All of Judah. Think of all the land in that area. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it up will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now, who gathers the nations? Keep your hand in Zechariah, but turn to Joel, the prophet Joel, and look at chapter 3, Joel chapter 3, verse 9. Because Joel tells us who gathers these armies together. Certainly the Antichrist does. But at whose bidding? God is putting a hook in His mouth like He would put it in a fish. And He's going to drag Him and the armies of the world down to Jerusalem. Joel chapter 3, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the soldiers draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Now look at verse 14. Multitudes. Multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord. There it is. The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And it seems as if Antichrist is winning. If you've got your place in Zechariah, go back to Zechariah chapter 14. It seems as if he is winning. Zechariah chapter 14, look at verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured. The houses plundered. The women ravished. And half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. The anti-God forces are capturing Jerusalem. They have half of it now. They are raping it. They are pillaging it. It seems as if the whole world is going to be plunged into endless darkness. But when we get to the end of verse 2, that's as dark as it's going to get. That's as dark as it's going to get because the light of the dawn is at hand. The transition is about to take place. The dawn, the light, is like the dawn, early morning dawn. It's starting to glow. And the Son of Man then, in this transitional event, third box, the transitional phase of the kingdom. The Son of Man sees half, the, half of Jerusalem, just as, I, just as God planned. And he storms down from heaven to rescue his people and the city. Zechariah, look at verse 7, talks about it this way. For it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord. He knows when it's going to be. Neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. The sentence of the court which had sat, had been meeting in heaven, had been carried out by angels and by God providentially using his creation during most of the tribulation period. But now, the Son of Man rises from the right hand of His Father, comes to the Ancient of Days, (Revelation, Daniel chapter 7, Revelation 4 and 5. is handed the title deed to the universe. And we read about Revelation, about all that, that it happens there. We get to Revelation chapter 19, and then we correlate it here with Zechariah chapter 14. He arises to fight against Israel's foes in the darkest hour of Israel's history. Notice verse 3 of Zechariah 14. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. He will come physically to the Mount of Olives. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And He will directly defend Jerusalem. Look at verses 12 and 13. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. And their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their, tongues, their tongue will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. And they will seize one another's hand. And the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Isaiah depicts this day as the day of great slaughter. That's what Isaiah says. This will be the day of great slaughter. The Lord personally destroys Antichrist. Daniel says in Daniel 7 Daniel 8 verse 25, but Antichrist, he will be broken without human agency because the Son of Man will take care of him. The Son of Man, the God-man, will destroy the Antichrist personally. When the Lord is done, there will be no doubt. You won't have to ask, is the Lord here? No, the lion will be here. And he will have defended his city his capital city and he will have destroyed the armies of the earth. And now we go to the fourth box. He's going to form his kingdom, right? He's we're in the we're in the daylight now. And Israel that had for centuries rejected Jesus as their Messiah wouldn't believe in him. Israel repents. For one of the most beautiful Passages in Scripture. Flip back to to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. There are many texts that we could look to, but this is one of the most beautiful. That speak of the repentance of Israel. Zechariah chapter 12, look at verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadrimmon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself. And their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. And I also will remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. They're going to repent. God's going to give them the spirit of grace and supplication. And they're going to say, Jesus, we put him to death. He's our Messiah. And they're going to weep genuinely. And turn their heart to him, and God will bless them and listen to what the psalmist says will happen to the rest of the world when that happens psalm sixty seven seven God and he's an Israelite, the psalmist God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him when Israel repents. All the rest of the nations of the world will be will fear God. And many, many Gentiles, many Gentiles will be saved through the work of God, through the nation of Israel. The kingdom which the prophets foresaw is like a beautiful dream. But is it a... Is it a tr- is it just a dream or and not real or will it come true? Well, tonight, with the few remaining minutes we have, we're going to look at what Jesus said when he came to the earth the first time. And we're going to find out that it's not just a dream that is unreal when it it is a dream. Actually, it's like a dream, but it is real, and it really will come true, because the kingdom that the prophets foresaw will be the exact kingdom which Jesus will set up when He comes again. Now we're trying. We're trying to connect this this kingdom, right? We looked at it in history. We looked at it as how the prophets envision it, and now we find. The son of David, the one who is going to be king, coming to earth for the first time, born of a virgin in a lowly manger in Bethlehem. And, and we, we have to look at this, at, at what happens in his life from the perspective that history is um, changing. Let's put it this way. I like to look at history like a stream. And at various points of time, it's not a straight stream. It bends. And God is always in charge of the bends. Well, here's a bend in the stream of history. If you would look at Matthew 4.17, Matthew 4.17, I think we can see this from the text of Scripture. Because we're at a bend in the stream of history, we not only must listen to what the Lord said, we must think about when he said it and when he did it. Well, no, not only what he said and what he did, but when did he do it? Look at verse 4, Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. From that time. Now go to Matthew chapter 16 and look at verse 21. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Those two, those three words from that time indicate turning points in our Lord's ministry. And to miss these turning points is and misinterpret them is to plunge the interpreter into endless confusion, if you will. Tonight, we will look for a few minutes more at a critical turning point in the Lord's plan to bring his kingdom to this earth, the first coming of our Lord and Savior. And we'll pay attention to how it connects to what the prophets said about this kingdom. Notice, first of all, I've given you ten categories of announcements of the king. And just we'll just look at one of them. Look at Luke chapter 1, where the angel Gabriel announces to Mary this coming child to her. This is just one of the ten that I've given you, and there are others. The angel Gabriel says this to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son... And you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. This is the same kingdom that the prophet said would come. And the angel Gabriel announces to Mary, you're going to have the king. The child that you have is going to be the king. Well, wow. Now, our Lord is in the home of Joseph and Mary. He grows up. He's around 30 years old. And he goes out into public ministry. He is the king. He is the son of David. And if he is going to establish a different kingdom than what the prophets envisioned, then he would tell us. But when he goes out and he announces, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he doesn't define it. He doesn't redefine it. Because it's the same kingdom that the prophets envision. He says, repent. The time is fulfilled in Mark 1.15. And the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Not only did he not redefine it, he didn't point out any differences between what he was preaching and saying and what the prophets said. Because there were no differences between what he was preaching and saying and what the prophets saw. And he used two important, that were his favorite expressions. One was his favorite expression. The other was Matthew's favorite expression of him. He called himself the Son of Man. What does that remind us of? Daniel chapter 7, right? Daniel chapter 7. They should have said Messiah. He Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. Why would Matthew do that? Well, where do we find him getting the kingdom in Daniel chapter 7? In the court in heaven. If we looked at verses 13 and 14 of Daniel 7, we would see that They're in heaven. Those two phrases connect him to the kingdom envisioned by the prophets. And he consistently used the Old Testament to support the message of the kingdom. In fact, in his very first appearance in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, they hand him the scroll. He opens the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61. And he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He's reading from Isaiah. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Doesn't take much to dot the I's and cross the T's. They should have said, He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's exactly who Isaiah said. This is the Messiah standing here. He didn't redefine it. It, The kingdom that he is going to set up is the same kingdom that the prophets foresaw. The exact same kingdom. And the fundamental characteristics of this kingdom that Jesus announced have all that. And he lays it out for them, especially in the Sermon on the Mount and in other places, Has the same characteristics as the characteristics that we looked at in the historical kingdom and the characteristics that we looked at in the kingdom that the prophets foretold about, the Lord gives us the same characteristics of his kingdom. And I've given you uh, an outline of those, and that's your homework to study those uh, through and look up those texts. Uh, But for the sake of time, let's just turn to that summary page. And in summary, we may say that the kingdom announced in the Gospels is the kingdom envisioned by the Old Testament prophets. And we note the spiritual foundational aspect is what is the same. Because Jesus told Nicodemus what? If you're going to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. If you're going to even see the kingdom, you must be born again. So you're not going to go into the kingdom unless you're regenerated, unless you're born again at its very beginning point. The moral aspect, the perfect king will establish his laws and accurately appraise all men according to them in this kingdom, exactly as the prophets envisioned. The socio-economic aspect, the perfect king who has moral strength and ability will keep the peace and care for the needy in this kingdom. And he will expect his subjects to demonstrate compassion also. The religious aspect. Religion will be used to facilitate the worship of God, the true God in this kingdom. The king will establish his laws for worship. Israel will be the divinely ordained channel of blessing to the world. Jerusalem will be the religious center. And you can look at those texts from the Gospels that show this. The political aspect. The international authority of this kingdom will be the Messiah. His capital will be Jerusalem. Israel will occupy a special place in his administration. And Gentile nations will also gladly participate. And you can look at those texts. The physical aspect, Jesus' miracles, which covered a gamut of physical issues, authenticated that he is the messianic king, and are a foretaste of the physical blessings that will occur in the coming kingdom that he has promised. All of this, exactly as the Old Testament prophets predicted, Prophesy. So the evidence is clear. The kingdom which our Lord announced is identical with the kingdom envisioned by the Old Testament prophets. It has not been established on earth yet, but it will be established on earth when he returns. The next thing we need to look at is we've, we've looked and said, well, it's the same kingdom. Now we understand, we've seen that he has gone out and and offered it to Israel. He said to Israel, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now let's just think in in the ten minutes that we have um, about the rejection of his message. And fast forward in your thinking to Matthew chapter 12, if you would go to Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew chapter 12, we have the initial decision. Of Israel, Which is actually the settled decision of the leaders, and they will move the people to the same decision. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. And the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? This can't be our. This may, is this our Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, by the devil himself, the ruler of the demons. Well, while you're in Matthew 12, you, we, we have to look at Isaiah 35. So if you go back to Isaiah 35, because this is an important text Isaiah 35, verse 5. This is exactly the miracle that God said through the prophets the Messiah would do. Look at Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5. When the Messiah comes, then the eyes of the blind will be opened. That's exactly what He did. And the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. And then finally... And the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Now, go back to Matthew 12. And look what he did. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. That's exactly what Isaiah said he would do. They should have said Messiah, not Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Furthermore, according to the Old Testament prophets, The Regal Messiah was to do these miracles in the power of the Spirit. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. We read that text that He opened up in in Nazareth. He said, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me to do these things. So, Jesus carried out His earthly ministry in the power of the Spirit, which is exactly what He said in Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So the miracles that he did attested to the work of the Spirit in his life, the Spirit of God. And so when the Pharisees ascribed to Jesus' works, connected them with the kingdom of evil, they were identifying the third person of the Trinity with the devil. And Jesus said, you will never be forgiven for that. You will never find forgiveness for that. Go back to Matthew chapter 12 and look at verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Never. Attributing the work of the Holy Spirit through the person of Christ to the work of the devil is a heinous act of treason and evidence of a heart that has no desire at all, because they had no desire at all, for repentance. And it is is also evidence of a heart in which the Holy Spirit will not work. It's important to observe those who were involved. The religious leaders were the leader, were, were leading the way, the charge. But the people also were following. We find that out, that they follow them all the way to Pilate and cry out, crucify him. So at this bend in the stream of, of his of history, Israel has re, initially rejected the Messiah and his offering of the kingdom. they have rejected him and his offer, and so now he's going to respond. the king is going to respond, and the king is going to respond they have rejected him they have um, gone past the line of decision. And so from Matthew 13 on he changes. He changes how he deals with Israel. And the first thing he does is what in Matthew 13? He speaks to them in in parables. Right? So from Matthew 13 on he's getting, he speaks to the nation in parables And he starts to prepare his disciples for his departure, for the time period in between his first coming and his second coming. And so his subject matter is going to be his, his main subject matter to them, to his disciples, is going to be his impending death and his second coming. Notice the progression. We have a few more minutes. Let's notice some of this. In Matthew 13, he begins to set forth his plan to prepare for his coming kingdom in a series of parables by hiding the truth about the mystery of the kingdom of heaven from the crowds and revealing the truth by way of explanation to those disciples who are truly following him. To the crowds, then, we find in Matthew 13, the parables were were a judgment. They were penal in nature. To the disciples, the parables were profitable because he explained them to the disciples. The most important part of the parables is the content, the new content that the Lord is going to reveal about what's going to happen between his first coming and his second coming. And we see it most clearly in the parable of the tares, which we will not look at. The next thing our Lord does, He's now this bend in the stream of history. He prepares he he announces to the disciples the building of a new entity during this time frame. During the time between his first coming and his second coming, his church. He says, I'm going to build my church, and I will give to that church the keys of the kingdom. Look at Matthew chapter sixteen. Matthew chapter sixteen, look at verse eighteen. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And many, many people have misinterpreted this verse. And so they think that the church, that there is a person on this earth that has the keys of the kingdom. There is a church that thinks that, right? Their top person has the keys of the kingdom. God's not going to give the keys of the kingdom to an imperfect bride. He's not going to give them the keys until they've been perfected. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. There will come a time when the perfected bride will be given those keys. But that's when the kingdom comes. The next thing our Lord does. So he, he now says, this is what you're going to be doing. He doesn't give it all to them fully. Right. But he says, I'm going to build my church and you're going to be. They're going to be the foundation of it. We find from Ephesians chap, chapter chapter uh, two, I think it is that they're the foundation of the church. Uh, building it the next thing, the very next thing he does is he's, he's got the disciples alone and he tells them, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. What? What? I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. They're going to put me to death. I'm going to be buried. But take heart. I'm going to be resurrected the third day. Look at verse 21. From that time, notice those words, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And they're going, what? What's going to happen to the kingdom? And he doesn't take long. He tells him right there what's going to happen to the kingdom. Look at verse, um, at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 27, if you will. Verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. When He comes again with the angels, He's coming in His kingdom. He says to them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to resurrect the third day. Don't worry. I'm coming again. And when I come again... I'm going to come in my kingdom. And I am going to take care of my enemies. And he says, some of you are going to see that. You're going to see that. You will not taste death until you see that. Six days later, what happens? Peter, James, and John go to the top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And they see the glory of the king. They see his majesty. They see a foretaste of what it will be like when he comes again. And then the next thing he does is he assures them. And this is where we'll end. He assures them that they don't need to worry that they will have a part in his kingdom. Go to Luke 12:32 and we'll just look at this last text Luke 12:32 The disciples were wondering, "What what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to us?" And Jesus says to them, "Do not be afraid, little flock. Don't be afraid, little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. I think we could apply that. Not directly, okay? But our Lord could say to us, don't be afraid, little flock. The Father will gladly give you your place in the kingdom. If you know His Son, if you have been redeemed and born from above, He will gladly give you Your place in the kingdom that he has promised you. He will make you a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid. Don't fear anything or anyone. You will have your part in the kingdom. And it's coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you. And we pray that our Lord would come quickly. In his name, amen.